of the Atlas Society Asks. I am Jennifer Grossman. Uh, my friends know me as JAG. I am CEO of the Atlas Society, which is the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways. Today, we are joined by Nadine Strassen. Before I even get into introducing the professor, I wanted to remind all of you that are joining us either on Zoom or streaming live on Facebook and YouTube uh, to please go ahead, type in your questions. We're gonna to try to get to as many of them as we can. If you are on Zoom, just type them into the Q&A. Uh, and if you are on other platforms, just type them into the comment stream. Please try to make them short so I can grab them. Um, Nadine Strassen is the John Marshall Harlan II Professor of Law Emerita at New York Law School, specializing in constitutional law and civil liberties. She served as the first female president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008, the recipient, recipient of numerous honorary degrees and awards. She has been named one of America's 100 most influential lawyers by the National Law Journal. Her books include Defending Pornography, Free Speech, Sex, and the Fight for Women's Rights, and more recently, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech and Not Censorship, published in 2018, and I understand a newer edition uh, with an epilogue that we're going to talk about, uh, published more recently. So Nadine, thanks again for joining us, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I really look forward to our conversation. So Nadine, I know having um, read and listened to your, uh, your book on Audible, you have been thinking and reading and speaking and writing about free speech uh, since 1977 when the Skokie controversy erupted so long um, that you had actually reached a point where you stopped receiving um, invitations to write more on the subject, uh, feeling that basically you had said what you wanted to say. Um, but that changed, I understand, in more recent times. Tell us what changed for you that led uh, you to undertake writing this book. I really felt, Jennifer, after decades of crusading for the most robust free speech and including defending hate speech, freedom for the thought that we hate, to quote the United States Supreme Court, uh, that I had made every argument that I possibly could. And uh, it was time to address other issues. And uh, however, in starting in around 2015, we started to see a wave of campus activism in support of human rights against police abuse in favor of racial justice and equality, causes that I certainly have supported as a human rights crusader. But uh, all of those movements seem to be pervaded by growing antipathy toward free speech. Uh, students started denouncing free speech, associating it 
only with hate mongers and, and racists. And we started to even see signs saying, you know, uh, free speech is itself a hateful concept. A local leader of the ACLU in Virginia who was going to be speaking at William, the College of William and Mary, her own alma mater, about student free speech rights, including the right to protest, was not able to deliver her message. She was shouted down by a really hostile crowd of students who said they were speaking for Black Lives Matter. And they had placards that said, free speech is fascism. ACLU would have defended Hitler too. And it was really heartbreaking because you could see that many students wanted to speak to her, to hear her ideas. They even approached her at the platform, uh, but the demonstrators prevented that exchange. So uh, I was really driven to try once again to explain my perspective, which is reinforced by history, by experience around the world, not only the United States, that precisely those who are advocating for human rights, who are advocating for social justice, are the ones who are most dependent on a robust free speech, uh, robust enough to extend even to what other people will consider to be hateful speech. So I tried to make uh, more persuasive arguments. I hope I succeeded. Um, you mentioned that while you were encouraged by the increased student activism for egalitarian uh, causes, you were uh, disheartened at the same time by the rise of students seeking to censor other points of view. Uh, as a philosophy organization, I, I think we would be interested, would it be possible uh, that both are being driven by this uh, kind of postmodern education emphasis on identity politics, uh, you know, not strictly Marxist per se, but oppressors, oppressed, and uh, thinking about people not as individuals necessarily, but as members of a, of a grievance group? Or do you see them as totally separate? I, I, I have to say that as a civil libertarian, I am troubled by what, by what I see as an overemphasis on group identity of every sort. I, you know, we hear the term snowflake used in, in one uh, sense recently. I like to think of snowflakes uh, with the understanding that every single one of them is unique, right? No two are alike. And to me, that is what is true of each of us as individuals. Uh, of course, in a society that has treated people in, in, in different ways, including discriminatory and oppressive ways, uh, based on certain demographic characteristics, we would be naive not to take that factor into account. You know, the fact that I am a woman and I certainly have been deprived of certain opportunities given my age um, uh, earlier in my life on that basis, of course, gender is an important aspect of who I am, but it is only one of infinite uh, number of characteristics. And what I have always resisted is this notion of essentialism, uh, that each of us can be summarized um, by focusing on one or just a handful of, of ethnic demographic type characteristics. 
I think that's really um, understating our, 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 our uniqueness as human beings and our autonomy uh, to, to create our own identity and, and, and sense of uh, a purpose. And I think it's also just a kind of a disempowering if we, if we focus and, and teach students that uh, to, to maybe overemphasize their um, identity as a member of a historically um, discriminated against group uh, and not to focus on all of the, the possibilities. I mean, if you think about yourself as a, as a victim. As a victim is, is really is really disempowering and, and patronizing. And, and of course, it's not nice to be taught that one is an oppressor um, also, I think. Um, so I, I agree with your basic point, yes. So while your book uh, was born out of your concern about what you saw happening on um, campus, as the students who embrace that cancel culture on campus start moving into publishing and, and journalism, are we going to see more you know, examples like uh, the Simon & Schuster's uh, canceling the publication of, of Josh, Senator Josh Hawley's book um, and more em employee revolts like you saw at uh, Politico for letting Ben uh, Shapiro guest edit. So I guess the question is whether or not this is a dynamic that's coming out of the universities or if you think it's more of a sort of a, a culture-wide um, infection, if you will. I would say both of the above, Jennifer, in a really important book that came out in 2018, uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind, co-authored by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Uh, they did discuss this phenomenon that uh, those who had been educated in a culture, campus culture, that unfortunately was becoming more hostile toward free speech, toward intellectual diversity and open uh, discourse and inquiry, that as those people graduated and, and moved into the, uh, the employment sphere, the government sphere, that we were going to start to see similar patterns there. But I also think that um, there is a culture-wide uh, acceptance, you use the term cancel culture, uh, and hostility toward free speech. For many years now, surveys that have been done of the general public's attitude toward free speech has shown increasing hostility toward the general concept and an increasing willingness, uh, indeed demand, for the government to suppress certain, certain controversial unpopular speech. Uh, sadly, the surveys show that uh, that antipathy toward free speech is disproportionately coming from certain sectors, including uh, the left end of the political spectrum, Democrats rather than Republicans, uh, women rather than men, and, and racial minorities. And I say that that's sad because those are uh, certainly the, 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 those who have traditionally been disempowered based on, on gender, race, and so forth are the ones that I believe history and current events demonstrate are most dependent 
on a robust free speech. And, and, and it's logical, uh, right? By definition, if you are a member of a political or um, ethnic or other kind of minority, you are never going to wield majoritarian political power. Uh, and so you are dependent on individual rights, freedom of speech and freedom of association in order to advocate your causes. And you are especially threatened by a government that's accountable to a majority to wield discretionary power. It's predictably not going to be wielded in a way that is favorable to your causes and your views. You mentioned Greg uh, Lukianoff, actually. We have him booked for, uh, I think, a couple of weeks from now. So this is our, our free speech year and a big priority for us. In, in He's our terrific. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so Nadine, in your book, which is uh, discipline in its focus on government censorship, um, making the case against hate speech laws, uh, you also seem to be making the case in principle, and I understand that the, the paperback, the newer edition has this in its epilogue, uh, the, the principle um, that suppression of disfavored views including on uh, social media, can ultimately backfire. So what are some of the blind spots, um, if you will, that tech or social media platforms may be missing when it comes to suppressing or uh, removing, again, which you argue they, they, your position is they have the right to do that, but what may be the unintended consequences of, of such moves? So if I may put on my law professor hat for just 10 seconds, Jennifer, uh, contrary to many popular misconceptions, although the United States First Amendment free speech protection is very strong, it is not absolute. Government is permitted to restrict speech if but only if the speech directly causes or threatens certain specific imminent serious harm. And the only way to prevent that harm is through punishing the speech. Examples include intentional incitement of imminent violence that's likely to happen imminently, or a true threat where the speaker is targeting the threat at a specific individual or small groups and intends to instill a reasonable fear on the part of the audience that they will be subject to attack, targeted harassment or bullying. So when the speech has a tight and direct connection to actual harm, it can and should be punished. But if you loosen up that standard, as is done under the content moderation policies of social media companies, as is done under the hate speech laws in other countries, you're going back to what we used to have in the United States called essentially the bad tendency test. If speech might indirectly, possibly at some point in the future, ha have a tendency to cause some harm, 
then it can be punished. And that simply gives too much discretion to whoever has the power to enforce that so-called standard, right? It's really no standard at all. And whether it's enforced by the government or whether it's enforced by uh, a con human content moderator working for Facebook or whether it's enforced by an algorithm at Twitter, um, inevitably it is going to over censor perfectly legitimate and even important speech because somebody or an algorithm subjectively determines that uh, it satisfies this loose standard. Now, again, predictably, one would expect that the strict enforcement, the over enforcement would disproportionately fall on those who lack political power. And in fact, for many years, there's been a large coalition of civil rights and civil liberties organizations complaining to Facebook that they were disproportionately and unfairly being taken down, including leaders of Black Lives Matter, pipeline protesters, other so-called social justice uh, warriors, right? Um, and, and even ironically, people who were quoting hate speech that had been directed at them as members of minorities, certainly not because they wanted to spread hateful ideas, but number one, because they wanted to show that racism is still a problem and to mobilize people against it because they were looking for sympathy and support uh, for the hurt they had suffered. So in other words, um, not only were these uh, uh, loose standards ineffective at dealing with the underlying problem uh, of hateful speech, but they were even counterproductive in taking down what we often call counter speech, speech that is trying to rebut and refute uh, that, that hateful speech. Well, you know, I, I, I want to encourage those of you who are joining us on um, Facebook, YouTube, and also on uh, Zoom, please um, tee up your questions. This is a, just a wonderful honor and a privilege to be able to have this time with, uh, with Nadine. Um, and you, you mentioned that the, a lot of the, the calls for more suppression of, of this speech are, is coming from more of the left Democratic side. Um, I, I also thought that this was interesting for, for me to read. I'm not coming from the Democratic left um, side, but, but part of what we see with social media is we get these kinds of silos. So I learned a lot of stuff in here uh, that I had not known about, such as in, including those examples that you gave about these complaints uh, that were coming from more of the Black Lives Matter um, movement about censorship. So if I, if um, I can, can yeah. make a point, though, Jennifer, uh, there certainly is plenty of censorship support coming from the right end of the political spectrum as well. So I don't want to at all make it seem as if I think that um, conservatives and Republicans get a free pass on this issue. In fact, you mentioned uh, oh, no, I think you mentioned Josh Hawley being taken off. I think what you didn't mention is that Josh Hawley, from the minute he was elected to uh, the Senate, has been crusading for government 
regulation and censorship of the social media companies, which it's a problem, especially for those who I would assume for those who support Ayn Rand's philosophy, because um, uh, and I certainly am not an, an anti capitalist, I believe that these companies have not only their own property rights, but they have their own free speech rights as communications platforms. And that means that they have a right to decide whom to host and whom not to host, what speech and what speakers, you know, just as you have no obligation to have me on your platform, I'm very honored that you decided I could be there. Uh, Facebook also doesn't have an obligation. Frankly, Facebook doesn't have an obligation to, to host this, which is a little bit worrying because- yes. No, hey, fair enough. Um, and point absolutely well taken. I was appalled to see the calls for uh, criminalizing, uh, burning the American flag. I think it's terrible. I don't want anybody to, to, to burn uh, the flag, but I'd rather know who uh, actually, and I think that, that hurts those people's uh, causes a lot more than it, it, it helps. Um, but it, you, you have said, you did say back in, I think, February of uh, last year, you posted a video uh, in response to the question, do you have the a right to not be kicked off of a social media platform? And your emphatic answer was no. And um, in preparation for the uh, Draw My Life that we are re releasing later this week, my name is Free Speech. I went back and I uh, read a lot of Ayn Rand's position on oh. uh, the, the matter. And, you know, the, the big takeaway, what she wrote the most about um, uh, was that uh, freedom of speech means freedom from interference um, and uh, freedom from suppression and punitive action and nothing else. So to mm -hmm. paraphrase the way she uh, talked about it, you, uh, your, fright, your right to free speech does not mean that somebody else has to provide you with a microphone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's becoming really complicated as a couple of the dominant platforms, including Facebook and Google, uh, are so essential for conducting business. I mean, even your organization, right, is, is, is dependent to some extent on these platforms. And so uh, recently you have even libertarian economists and law professors advocating that uh, perhaps these companies should be treated like regulated public utilities or common carriers, that they are such an essential part of the infrastructure, similar to the way the landline telephone companies were in the last century, uh, that there's a common law obligation for them to treat everybody reasonably, fairly, and non-discriminatorily. And that I was really quite surprised. Uh, recently, Richard Epstein, who's a prominent um, libertarian law professor, Chicago School, uh, teaching at NYU, he had an interview in the Wall Street Journal where he advocated that approach. Interesting. Well, I want uh, those who are joining us on the uh, on YouTube, on Zoom, on Facebook to, to jump in. <laughs> Please don't say anything that will get us uh, yanked off of those platforms because as we do- uh, see, isn't that, isn't that dangerous though when we You know, it, it, but Nadine, this happens- I know you're kind of joking, but- you I'm know kind that. of joking, but I'm kind of, I'll give you a real life example. 
when we did earlier this spring, last year's spring, we did uh, My Name is Coronavirus. So we took that method of um, applying the Draw My Life and we told the story of the virus. Uh, and But then when we were talking about the origins, it was becoming clear that maybe this wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't coming out of what we, we thought it was coming out of. But I said, well, if I say what I knew at that slice time in history to, to be the truth or as best as we could ascertain the truth, that anybody who was having that position, that the, their, not only the videos were getting yanked, but in some cases their entire accounts were getting yanked. So I, I, this is a very real time issue that happens with us. And I, and I think it's, uh, it is a shame when we are pulling back. I, I know I have seen um, in the past few weeks, um, just in, its, in very specific days when our, you know, our social media that have been growing, 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 growing. And then like on one day, it'll just have a spike going down. And just even internally, we, we talking about, well, did we post something that day that was, that just our audience had a really adverse effect, but then we'll go around and we'll talk to other people in the community and they'll say, no, the same thing happened to, right. to us that day um, that they didn't get purged, but there were enough accounts that, that did get purged that it was, you know, so it's, it's a very scary. And, um, and, and it, you know, it's, it would be really interesting from your philosophical perspective and that of, of um, supporters of your organization. Uh, you might come at this somewhat differently from me as a civil libertarian. I know I've had many arguments with my libertarian friends at the, at the Cato Institute, uh, but the ACLU, and I agree, has always taken the, the perspective that if any entity or individual has enough power to, in effect, suppress what we think should be inherent human rights, including the right to free speech, then we have to find some way to constrain that power abuse. It's not going to be the U.S. Constitution because uh, that it only imposes restraints on government, but there have to be some other options. And a really good analogy is the civil rights laws. And I know that some libertarians oppose those, uh, but basically until those laws were passed, it was completely legal for even the most powerful large private sector entity, a university, a corporation, a hotel chain, a restaurant chain, uh, to discriminate on any basis they wanted, including race, gender, religion, you name it. It was not illegal under the US Constitution because they were not government entities. So the ACLU uh, lobbied for anti-discrimination laws. Uh, I think correctly, that would be another subject perhaps for, for debate, uh, but I think there is an analogy in this situation. But uh, I would be very nervous about any heavy-handed government imposition on these companies of um, ways that they may or may not moderate content. Uh, for those who are really large and dominant, I would be more in favor of um, insisting that they adhere to basic free speech standards, since they're wielding power that, uh, that exceeds the power that 
that governments have wielded in the past, right? In the past, yes. governments used to um, censor private sector speakers. Now we have private sector companies censoring the most powerful government officials in the world. And that's bad, not only for the free speech of Donald Trump himself, but for the free speech right of everybody who wants to hear him, including his opponents who want to hear his messages so they can respond to it. And it's certainly very dangerous for democracy, where we, the people, to quote the opening words of the Constitution, wield sovereign power. How can we do that if we cannot hear uh, what is being said by those we have elected? And, and how can we hold them accountable to us? Uh, the US Supreme Court said that when the speech is about public affairs or by public officials or about public officials, it's more than a matter of individual self-expression. It is the essence of self-government. And in that sense, I think that while I defend his rights under a capitalistic and free speech system, I think that Mark Zuckerberg poses a greater danger than Donald Trump or Joe Biden possibly could, uh, because at least we have the, the checks of the constitution for the government officials, we can, diselect them, uh, we can impeach them, uh, and so forth, but we don't have any of those remedies against against the Zuckerbergs of the world. Yeah, well, I, I think it, it's, it's very interesting, particularly in light of Parler and what happened with Parler, where they, uh, you know, conservatives who were either banned or purged or just shrugged uh, when it came to Facebook and, and Twitter, they went off and they created their, uh, their own platform and then just, you know. Parler, I did two interviews on Parler and I'm absolutely Oops. convinced that their mission was to um, provide a, 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 a free speech friendly platform. A lot of conservatives flocked there because they were being kicked off the, the mainstream media, but Parler actually made very robust outreach to prominent liberals and progressives, you know, even offering to pay if they would bring a certain number of, uh, of, of followers with them. And so I think it was just a coincidence that those who were hungering for free speech protection were disproportionately on the right. So now you, you talked about, um, that while the Constitution isn't necessarily a, a, a remedy um, in, in some of these cases, that there, there may be other legislation or uh, what have you. So I would be remiss if I, if I didn't mention um, yesterday, you know, that Ron DeSantis uh, in Florida, Governor of Florida, um, came forward with essentially this, uh, with a proposal for legislation that was uh, in, in part spreading, stemming from the idea that when social media companies uh, can deplatform a, a candidate or uh, politicians or suppress uh, uh, stories which may be damaging to a, a particular uh, candidate or you know um, government, that uh, that is essentially like an in-kind donation. Uh, and that that can be um, fined on a state level. Is, is, 
Is that that makes me very nervous. I have to say the yeah, ACLU, yeah. this makes us hated among liberals and progressives, but uh, the ACLU has always opposed campaign finance laws uh, for the very reason that the Supreme Court has been striking them down. Of course, the Supreme Court has never said that money is speech, but the Supreme Court has said that in order to disseminate your message effectively, you have to spend money. And that certainly is true when you're talking about the really expensive broadcast media. And therefore, if you put limits on how much money people can spend to advocate their, their cause or their candidate, that's going to reduce the amount of advocacy. Uh, so I'm very leery about any such kind of regulation. And um, it also seems to me that the criteria are again so subjective uh, that it, it would require like some government enforcers to be monitoring uh, the expression, to be looking for violations, and 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 that's going to exert an enormous chilling effect on uh, on would-be users of the platform. So that that proposal makes me very nervous. So um, again, I want to encourage those who are joining us to ask your questions. I'm going to get to them, but I have so many questions uh, for, for Nadine, my, myself. Um, going back away from the, the law more to, to culture as well. Um, last summer, you were one of the signatories uh, on Harper Bazaar's uh, a letter on justice and open debate which uh, for one state stated, quote, restriction on debate, whether by an impressive government or an intolerant society invariably hurts those who lack power. Uh, the letter received uh, a lot of criticism and some blowback. Um, and uh, could you just share, well, tell us what happened Give us a little bit of the background. On I'm, that. I'm very proud of having signed that letter, which made a really important point, which unfortunately uh, continues to be very true, which is uh, there is this push to cancel uh, not only ideas that are deemed to be objectionable, not politically correct, but even the entire person who has dared to utter that idea or to publish it or not to censor it because there's guilt by association uh, involved here too that we want to completely deny any platform moving forward to that person and ironically shortly after the letter went public exactly that happened there was a campaign to uh, have somebody who signed the letter to have her fired uh, there was a, her employer at i can't remember which publication it was a, a magazine uh, was pressured uh, and why not only because of objection to the ideas in the letter but because of who signed the letter. And I think the big uh, target there was JK Rowling, because a lot of people don't like some comments she's made about transgender people. So you add, you know, you don't like her ideas. And so there's guilt by association. If you sign a letter that has absolutely nothing to do with transgender issues. And therefore, not only are we rebutting they're not rebutting the idea at all. They're simply asking for a person to be punished, uh, canceled. Now, 
one objection that I thought was well taken, and it made me realize that the letter was not as clear as it should have been on this point. Uh, some people said, look, all of you who signed this letter are speaking from positions of security and prominence, and obviously you're not being canceled or you're not self-censoring, or why would you sign this letter? And I think that's absolutely correct. We were not, speaking for myself at least, I wasn't uh, particularly fearful that I would lose any opportunity to express my views, but I was speaking on behalf of those who are not so well established, including my students and students that I meet all over the world when I speak who are uh, afraid to voice opinions that might be seen as controversial and, and with good reason. Look at the students who have been outstanding high school students who have been accepted to various colleges and universities, and somebody dredges up some, you know, horrible, hateful thing that they posted on social media years ago when they were teenagers and probably drunk. I mean, and, and, and you know, that's not to be applauded that they did that, but are we going to reduce, you and I were talking earlier, Jennifer, about, you know, reduction of people to one identity what seems to me even worse to reduce them to the stupidest drunken tweet that they ever issued when they were adolescents and to say, therefore, you're going to be deprived of the Harvard education, the other university education that you would have received. That is, is really uh, problematic. And, and so to me, the cancellation of, of young people, the unforgivingness that is thwarting debate and thwarting um, education and careers. All right. Well, I, I, I still have a few other questions I'm going to um, want to get to, including what one of the things I thought was so most shocking and surprising to me was about uh, hate speech laws in Nazi Germany. But I'm going to put that off because we have um, our uh, questions here. And one of the young people who actually uh, came to our gala and who's a part of our book club, and, and that's Aaron Tao. And Aaron, uh, guess who's going to be next on our uh, book club? It's going to be uh, Professor Strawson. So, but here's a hot potato one. Uh, Nadina, I'm not sure if you're going to want to take this one or if you even have a perspective on it. His question is from your view as a constitutional lawyer, did Trump's rhetoric leading uh, to the Capitol Hill riots, uh, does that fit the definition of um, incitement of uh, imminent lawless action per the Brandenburg versus Ohio standard. And is this a question from Aaron? Yes. Oh, good. Nice to meet you, Aaron. Thank you for the excellent question. Uh, law professors are split on this, but uh, I put myself in what I think is the majority, not that it matters. It's what I think is the correct perspective, uh, that this appropriately strict standard that the Supreme Court has laid down for punishable incitement is not satisfied by anything that Trump said either on January 6th or leading up to it. Uh, this is a comes from a the, the definition comes from a unanimous Supreme Court decision in 1969 called Brandenburg versus Ohio. I'm very proud that it was an ACLU case in which, by the way, we defended 
the speech, anti-civil libertarian speech, right? Freedom for the Thought We Hate by a leader of a Ku Klux Klan rally who was denouncing Jews and blacks and people whose rights we defend. But there was a really important underlying principle here, which has been used to protect speech by um, civil rights activists and Black Lives Matter activists. Namely, the speaker has to intend to incite imminent violence that is likely to actually happen imminently. It is a very difficult standard to satisfy. And I think the imminence uh, element is would be very hard to prove here. And the intent element would also be very hard to prove. Um, let me just add one point, if I may. There was a similar complaint that was brought against Donald Trump when he was campaigning for president the first time around based on statements that he made at a campaign rally where um, some demonstrators were, um, were, were demonstrating against him and Trump said to his supporters, get him out of here, get him out of here. And he made some other insinuations like in the old days, uh, we used to carry them out on a stretcher and pay your lawyer's fees. Uh, you know, arguably inducing uh, not the most gentle treatment, to put it mildly, and they were roughed up and they brought a lawsuit uh, against Trump for intentional incitement. And the judge on appeal said, you know, it doesn't quite, it's close, it's, it's, it's worthy of examination, but it doesn't rise to that level because in addition to all of those other statements, Trump also said, don't hurt him. And I think he made similar kinds of statements um, uh, more recently. So on balance, I don't think it would satisfy the standard, but there are others who disagree. Yeah, um, well, that's interesting to know that they're, they're kind of roughly split. And I did watch that speech in live time. And it seemed to me that uh, if you wanted to make a case that it was incitement, the, the fact that he talked about peacefully, you know, protesting uh, and certainly an intent, I, I don't think the result was, uh, was in his selfish best interest, hardly. Um, so... Uh, let's see, MF Superstar uh, asks, this kind of going back to our earlier conversation about identity politics, um, is the weaponization of the concept of whiteness, is that a way to fight hate? Uh, or is that something that actually can foment and uh, hate and dehumanize? People? Could I get a clarification of the question? I'm not sure I understand it. Yeah. Um, uh, well, if MF Superstars is with us, uh, maybe they can oh, that, uh, okay. lead free phrase it for us because, yeah, I'm not sure where, where they're um, coming from. This is a simple one. Janet Smith asks, Jennifer, I, where can I get your money pin? Go to the Atlas <laughs> Society store and oh. you can get it and support the Atlas Society at the same time. Um, okay, Vicki Seuss. Okay, well, I, I think you are going to take issue with this one. Uh, Facebook and Twitter are becoming almost public utilities since they removed Parler. Uh, would a utility company decline service to a customer if they didn't like their views? 
Yeah, so this is exactly the argument that was made by Richard Epstein and is being made by others. But um, as you can imagine, Vicki, there are a lot of people that um, would share objectivist philosophy that I think would, would, no pun intended, object to that because they would say it's a private sector. I know my Cato Institute libertarian friends um, would object because they say it's a private sector entity and they are free to make whatever choices they want and um, they're not literally endowed with a um, government-sponsored monopoly which would distinguish them from some of the companies that have been treated and to, to the best of my knowledge most of the companies that have been treated as regulated public utilities literally have an official government monopoly I think it is a very serious issue and really worth examining. Uh, it would at most apply only to a few dominant companies, and hopefully um, we would see lowered barriers to entry and we would have parlors and other alternative platforms. That would be my ideal view, world where we would have multiple platforms that all of us could choose among with different content moderation policies. Some would be, you know, complete freewheeling free speech. Some would be very strictly modified and, and, and it would give us, you know, ideally the same freedom of choice that we have when we decide what book to read. Um, well, hopefully we, we will, we will get to that place. I have uh, said in the past, you know, when the, big tech companies themselves are the ones that are inviting regulation that that is something to worry about be very nervous because, about because yeah. um it may actually entrench their positions and certainly if it's regulation that is over the whole sector which it sounded that the rick desantis proposal was the josh hawley and by the way there was very little that former President Trump and current President Biden agreed on, but they both agreed that uh, Section 230 should be repealed, which would create huge um, potential liability for platforms, meaning that it would become even harder for new companies to emerge. No surprise that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is supporting a, 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 a repeal or at least a big revision of Section 230. So that's another reason we have to be very careful about potential unintended consequences of what might seem like a positive um, step, but might in fact uh, further entrench the power of these dominant companies who can more easily deal with the regulations than uh, an upstart could. So with about 15 minutes left, I'm going to return to some audience questions, but I did not want to run out of time without um, talking about, about that element of the book that I thought was um, really so, so surprising to me because people who want to legislate uh, hate speech believe that doing so would reduce hatred and bad ideas uh, and protect those who are the objects of such hate speech. But as you point out uh, in your book um, was just how many hate speech laws had existed in uh, Germany prior to the rise of the Nazis. You are a, uh, the daughter of a German-born Holocaust survivor, who I understand uh, barely uh, survived uh, Buchenwald. You write that if hate speech laws would have averted that atrocity, you would support them, but they didn't. So why not? For the same reason that 
prohibition laws in general don't work, right? There's the forbidden fruits aspect. And um, in fact, the Nazis were prosecuted under the very strict anti-hate speech laws at the time in the Weimar Republic. And they and and with many convictions. And the leading Jewish organization at the time said that these were by and large, you know, well-handled prosecutions. It wasn't as if they were bungled. But the Nazis welcomed the trials as propaganda opportunities to draw attention to their ideas that they otherwise never would have received and even sympathy. And we see that today um, when people are kicked off platforms, it often derives or when they're deplatformed on campus, they, they kind of like it because it gives them much more attention and support than they otherwise would have would have received. And, and meanwhile, um, the real problem in Nazi Germany was that actual violence was uh, was not uh, prevented. The Nazis were assaulting and murdering their political opponents and 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 members of of minority groups. And that's something that we really uh, cannot lose sight of. And I think you talked about that uh, earlier, Jennifer, when you referred to the people who actually did commit violence on on January sixth. They're responsible. And they've got to be held uh, criminally uh, accountable for that. And to some extent, when you displace responsibility onto speech, not only are you unfairly punishing the speaker, but you're also unfairly exonerating those who actually um, conduct violent acts. Most people who the vast majority of people who hear hateful ideas do not go out and commit hateful acts, right? We're repulsed by the ideas. We ignore them, we refute them, we redouble our efforts to work against hatred. So Alan, oh gosh, Alan, we have to stop meeting like this. Alan was uh, on my birthday party yesterday. We had oh, a birthday party because, well, it was actually Ayn Rand's birthday. So oh. uh, so we uh, had a little gathering, some cake, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but on more serious subject, Alan asks, uh, it has been suggested, uh, it, he gives the example of a uh, recent Wall Street Journal op-ed by Philip Hamburger. It has been oh, yes. suggested, yeah, that Section 230 could be read to deny liability protection for taking things off as opposed to allowing things to be on um, site. I thought that was a fascinating op-ed, and I've been quoting it myself, Alan. You have to understand that this is, um, it's probably a minority position because most of the people who want to reform or, uh, Section 230, including both Biden and Trump, were doing it for, well, I guess, especially Biden, right? They, they want the platforms to take down even more speech, not, not the opposite. I don't know exactly how repealing Section 230 is likely to do that. Uh, but I also think if you look at the legislative history of Section 230, um, it's clear that the intent was to uh, encourage platforms to engage in so-called content moderation, some would call it censorship, uh, that goes beyond, that allows them to take down speech that would be protected under the US Constitution. So this gets into a debate among lawyers to what extent do you interpret a statute according to its text? And Hamburger does just a brilliant job of textual analysis. Uh, to what extent should you go beyond that and look at the intent? And I think clearly the intent of the statute was to increase sensorial power on the part of the platforms. 
So uh, Nadine, you mentioned you were teaching your seminar to today, and um, I am interested in, uh, you know, you wrote the book because you were concerned about this um, rising in tolerance and a willingness to um, silence dis disfavored uh, views on college campus. You have been uh, teaching for, for a long time and, and interacting with, with young people. Um, are you see what kinds of shifts in attitudes from the times when you were out there and you, you know you were an early activist in, in the earlier civil rights uh, eras? What's what's been happening? Jennifer, I, I really have to say, let me start with this fact. I don't think my book would be published today. I mean, there wow, is so that's much big... pressure within the publishing industry that I think even, you know, the guilt by association of defending free speech for hate mongers, I, well, I shouldn't say Oxford University Press is headed by a wonderful person who uh, named Nico Fund, who is completely dedicated to free speech, but I have no doubt that he would be under enormous pressure, uh, especially from his younger staff members, not to touch this book with a 10-foot pole. Uh, so the cultural pressures against unpopular speech, anything that can be considered, you know, the big three, uh, negative kinds of speech that are always pilloried are, and all of the terms are completely subjective and vague, but hate speech, disinformation or misinformation, and extremist or terrorist content. And, and uh, public opinion polls, and, and even more importantly, uh, attitudes among members of Congress and government, the Biden administration, as well as the Trump administration are very much in favor of cracking down on this speech. The hamburger perspective of how can we interpret Section 230 to allow fewer restrictions is definitely uh, the minority position. So um, there is, you know, I think my book made a, a little dent among people who are, are willing to read it. But I think there are a lot of people who would just look at the title and say, I'm not going to read it. How can they resist this beautiful color and design? <laughs> you know, and I have to say, I was we were talking before we, we went on air, so to speak, that I, I think that people uh, that take my, my free speech seminar and to some extent people who come to hear me speak on campus are probably uh, self-selected. Now that said, here's a really important point that I wanna make. There are a lot of polls that show the vast majority of people do support general, uh, I hope this isn't a dirty word in this crowd, liberal principles in the sense of classic liberalism, free speech, free thought, enlightenment values, rationality, all of which are under attack. Uh, but that the vast majority of people are, are silent. They don't even vote in very large numbers, let alone become involved in the political process or the culture wars. And I think they, the culture and the policies are disproportionately being driven by extremes uh, at either end of the political spectrum. So 
I really want to urge everybody who believes in free speech to, to please make your views known. Speak up. I know it can be very difficult to be attacked. I mean, free speech has become a dirty word in many quarters, but um, it's going to, the problem is just going to get worse unless more of us exercise the right not to remain silent. Yes, and I think to, to lead by example and to exercise, you know, moral courage and to say, okay, I will accept the, the consequences. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the more that each of us sort of shrink and retreat into silence, uh, I, I think it, it's, it's not, it doesn't end in a good place. You it's know? hard it's, to ask people to accept the consequences, Jennifer, if it's going to be losing a job. Well, and it's very ostracism. These are very serious consequences. It's it, it's it's that's quite true. And I'm I'm always uh, uh, when students say, "Hey, I know what I'm supposed to say on this paper in order to pass," but if I say what I believe, even if it's well done, um, you know, it's, I, I think part of the reason why a lot of students are, are opting not to to go to college because um, they they are not finding it what they it should be which it really should be the, the bastion of the critical thinking and free speech but um we are glad that you did manage to publish this uh, under the wire and uh we are going to have it uh as the subject of our book club and you're going to see it in in memes and uh other ways in which we can um get get your this out to the public where can people uh, learn more about your work? Where should we follow you? And how can we help get your message? I'm not on social media, if you okay. can believe it. When it first you know, became a big thing, I was very concerned about individual privacy. Well, guess what? My greatest fears have been surpassed. I'm a big fan of George Orwell. I mean, this has, the, the degree of surveillance has become so pervasive. I think that I'm subject to it even without being on the, on those platforms. And that is, uh, so forgive me, you can't follow okay. me that way. But I think if you use Dr. Google, you should find like zillions of podcast interviews and webinars and um, talks that I've given. Um, they're, they're very easy to find. So we did and we will, we will continue definitely Orwellian times. I think the New York Times just came out for a call for some kind of ministry of truth or government, uh, you know, agency to uh, to fight misinformation from, from their perspective. So um, very, very fascinating. Never been more vital uh, for this message than now. So Nadine, thank you so very much and look forward to thanking you in person before long. I want to thank all of you who are uh, join, have joined us who asked the, the questions. Um, also, thanks to, to those supporters of the Atlas Society who are uh, joining us. And thanks to all of you who um, enjoy this kind of content for considering uh, supporting the Atlas Society with your tax deductible donations. So thank you very much. And thank you, Nadine. And everyone, please join us next week. We're going to be uh, sitting down with Thank you, Jennifer, and many thanks to especially the young people. You're so important. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.